taking homes of Palestinians to go back in the night to attack them. They have evacuated Yaffa of Jewish Zionist residents, so they do not protect the Palestinians who become open targets for prey. This is the so-called only democracy on earth. This is the so-called mixed city. It has never been mixed. It has never been equal. We cannot be equal in a settler colony. We cannot be equal in a settler colony. A long You're listening to the Race Capital Reframe on the week of Wednesday, June 2nd, 2021 with Chelsea Higgs-Wise, Naomi Isaac, and Kalia Harris. Let's kick it off with the local news. Kalia? This week in our eviction watch, there are 107 unlawful detainers on the books in Richmond courts. Just as a reminder to our listeners that unlawful detainers are the first step that a landlord takes in order to evict a tenant. Spotsylvania resident Isaiah Brown was released from the hospital last Tuesday after being shot by Virginia police last month. Isaiah Brown is a Black queer man who was shot by the same police officer who had given him a ride home earlier that night. According to the attorney, the doctors found eight bullets in Brown's body. The Spotsylvania County Sheriff's Office released footage of the shooting last month, as well as audio of the 911 call leading up to it. The deputy involved was placed on administrative leave pending an investigation from the Virginia State Police Bureau of Criminal Investigations. That's right. The police investigating themselves. So as for now, Brown will continue his healing and recovery at home. His family has also started a GoFundMe to help offset the medical cost incurred from the incident. And we will link the information in the show notes to this episode. In other local news, families in North Chesterfield's third largest mobile home park have begun the process of forming a tenants association to protect themselves from potential displacement. This comes as the current landlords of Suburban Village recently informed residents that the property, which houses nearly 220 families, will be sold for a whopping $23 million. According to the Partnership for Housing Affordability Regional Housing Framework, Chesterfield County has a shortage of 2,080 homes for renters, making less than 50% of the region's median income. Many residents worry that the new property managers may replicate the same predatory practices as the current owners, including rent hikes, untimely repairs, and racially discriminant enforcement of rules. So y'all are telling me there's housing troubles not only in Richmond, but in the surrounding counties? They displace people from the city. They displace people from the counties. Like, where are poor people supposed to go? And we have to remember that our homelessness funding operates regionally. So not just with the city, but also with Chesterfield, Hanover. So they are absolutely defunding housing regionally. Also, I think folks have a certain image of when they picture like a mobile home park, but let us not forget that a lot of Black, Brown, Indigenous folks also live in these neighborhoods. And as has been said of Suburban Village are facing unfair and discriminant enforcement of rules being evicted at higher rates than their white counterparts. So this is also a racial justice issue. I think when I initially saw this article, they said that there was families from Guatemala and that the Tenants Council was actually made up of Latinx families. 
Growing up in that area and going to schools that fed from that area, I know that there are black and brown people living in that area and deserve justice. And it's important to keep our eye on that area as well. This Saturday from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Chimborazo Park, the Virginia Prison Abolition Collective is hosting a Virginia Abolitionist People's Assembly and Barbecue. The People's Assembly is open to all those who are working to end incarceration as, as well as those who have been directly impacted by it. You can learn more about the collective on Instagram and Twitter at VA Prison Abolition. And y'all, I am so, so excited. I've learned so much from every organizer in this collective. I mean, we have a bunch of new African folks who are just people on the inside who have done so much to really raise the consciousness of the people and are doing so much to educate folks on why we need to end colonial structures. And so I think this is going to be a really, really cool event. And if folks have time, they can definitely go and check it out. Well, y'all, moving into national news, we're going to kick it off with our COVID watch. So this week, nationally, COVID-19 cases and deaths have dropped to their lowest levels in nearly a year. There have been just over 33 million total cases and 591,539 total deaths. So a lot of a lot of COVID deaths. According to the data from the CDC, side eye, About 40.9% of the U.S. population is fully vaccinated, and about half have received at least one dose of the vaccine. In Virginia, we've had over 675,000 cases and 11,194 deaths. 44.4% of the state's population is fully vaccinated, according to the Virginia Department of Health. Sabrina Moreno of the Richmond Times-Dispatch reports that Latinx people are the second most vaccinated population in Virginia, with over 40% of their population having received at least one dose. Now, y'all, over a month ago, Latinx communities had the lowest vaccination rates while being the most likely to be infected, hospitalized, or to die from COVID. And now, for the first time since vaccinations have began, Virginia is one of only two states in the nation whose vaccinations among Latinx people is outpacing the group's share of hospitalizations and deaths. Much of this can be attributed to community clinics rather than governmental institutions. Shocker. Community clinics have been extremely successful in reaching their patients, most of whom are Black, Latinx, and or immigrants. Their success has come from using methods implemented by community clinics for decades, such as having Spanish-speaking staff, translated vaccine information, building and maintaining a foundation of trust, and spending one-on-one time with patients actually explaining the options. And of course, for working people, having weekend and night clinics to fit their schedules. And in our last piece of data for our COVID watch this week, a recent national study conducted by the Kaiser Family Foundation showed that nearly half of the adults in the United States who have not received a COVID-19 vaccine are concerned about missing work as a result of side effects from the shot. The findings highlight a key obstacle to vaccination, particularly for the 25% of American workers who do not have any paid sick leave time. So that concludes my COVID report. What y'all think? I'm really happy to see folks in our community being able to be vaccinated, but my heart also goes out to the diaspora in the way that we see Americans 
receiving the vaccine, but this uh, rate of vaccination is not happening at the same level or rate in other places where we have Black, Brown, and Latinx folks. So my heart really goes out to them. And we need to continue to show solidarity with those people who are still suffering from this pandemic. And also keep in mind that it is ongoing. You know, the vaccinations are happening, but it is ongoing. And um, that's important to keep in mind. And that ongoing piece that's not being addressed by paid sick leave, by universal health care, is just a laugh in the face to so many people that want to stay healthy and not just be, quote unquote, healthy enough to go to work and, and make the labor force drive. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight that vaccination apartheid that we were just talking about and that we've been talking about for weeks. The African nations just put out last week to the WHO the amount of doses that they needed of AstraZeneca in order to vaccinate, you know, all of their 1.2 billion people on the whole continent. And we have AstraZeneca vaccines in the U.S. that we are not using that could easily go to countries within the COVAX program. And it's just not happening. The so-called United States of America has always been a vulture when it comes to being opportunistic when there's pandemics or any kind of mass problem facing the world. They always swoop in and empower themselves, basically, to maintain their position as the most successful plantation in the world. In other national news, last week, the CEOs of the six largest banks in the country were criticized by lawmakers for charging customers a collective $4 billion in overdraft fees amidst the pandemic. The top executives of Citigroup, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley drew heat from both parties, with Democrats condemning the bank's poor relief efforts and Republicans denouncing the efforts of some banks to decrease lending to fossil fuel companies, as well as for releasing public statements on political debates that lawmakers said were, quote, outside the scope of banking, end quote. During Thursday's Senate Banking Committee hearing, Senator Elizabeth Warren challenged the CEOs to raise their hand if they awarded the same overdraft protection large banks received from the Federal Reserve to struggling customers. Unsurprisingly, y'all, not a single hand was raised. As someone who was charged multiple overdraft fees over the pandemic by Bank of America, I would like to see some actual accountability. Like, where is this $4 billion? Are we getting it back? Or we just going to have them raise their hand? Real fast. As another Bank of America customer, I remember vividly not being able to get in touch with anyone from Bank of America in March and April of 2020. Not a soul would pick up the phone, could not talk to a human. So yes, we need to talk about this. Also, the fact that these CEOs, while everybody else is dealing with the economic downfall, they have received at least a 5% pay increase over the course of the pandemic. And I find it funny that these senators like to go on the floor and play hardball like they're not the ones who allowed for the violence to occur. They oversaw the looting and they're going to come out here and try to uh, criticize. Mad at the CEOs not redistributing the wealth when that's not what they've ever done. Yes, Elizabeth Warren believes in capitalism, so. I recall her saying she is a capitalist to the bone. Well, in an unprecedented move, four-time major tennis champion Naomi Osaka withdrew from the French Open after being fined $15,000 for not engaging the press after her first round victory at Roland Garros on Sunday. After the win, Osaka pulled out of the tournament completely, posting a statement on her social media that detailed her experience with anxiety and depression that has been exacerbated by the media. 
Naomi Osaka is a 23-year-old who was born in Japan and moved with her family to the U.S. at age three and is currently the number two ranked tennis player in the world. ESPN reports that the leaders of the four Grand Slam tournaments reacted Tuesday by promising to, quote, address players' concerns about mental health, end quote. The pledge came in a statement signed by the same four administrators who threatened the possibility of disqualification or suspension for Osaka if she continued to skip news conferences. In her statement, Naomi Osaka said that she will, quote, take some time away from the court now. But when the time is right, I really want to work with the tour to discuss ways we can make things better for players, press and fans, end quote. As it stands, tennis players are required to attend news conferences if requested to do so. Grand Slam rules allow for fines up to 20 grand if they don't show up. Let me tell you, when you're rich like this and you don't need them, you can take your time away from the court and to make space to make it better for you, the fans, and for everyone. Go ahead, Naomi. Yes, we love to see Black folks choosing themselves and their rest over these institutions. Well, in yet another attempt to co-opt liberation work, the Chicago Police Department is hiring community members for more, quote, youth and community-focused jobs, end quote, this summer including a position called community organizer, y'all. This is definitely something to keep an eye on as communities all over the country continue to demand an end to policing. Police departments will continue to repackage policing. I think I saw in this article how they uh, discussed that, you know, Barack Obama got his start as a community organizer. I was like, first off, y'all, we are not we are not trying to make Barack Obama the role model. So y'all already got it wrong. I mean, they've, they've just done everything that they can to co-opt the protest movement and really calm it down. You know, like they can filter the type of youth resistance that they want to see uh, by making sure that people are connected to the police department. But you're not going to get free working within the police department. It's just not going to work. I mean, uh, it's messy. Messy. Well, on Sunday, Illinois became the first state ever to pass legislation prohibiting law enforcement officers from using deception or lying while interrogating people under the age of 18. The bill bans commonly used deceptive interrogation tactics, including making false promises of leniency and false claims about the existence of incriminating evidence. According to the Innocence Project, both of these tactics have long been identified as significantly increasing the risk of false confessions, which have played a role in about 30% of all wrongful convictions overturned by DNA. Recent studies suggest that children under 18 are between two and three times more likely to falsely confess than adults. Illinois has long been known as the false confession capital of the United States, y'all, with a number of high-profile exonerations of both adults and teenagers who falsely confess to crimes they did not commit. What in the hell? I feel like the the basis of being in law enforcement is lying and deception. So I don't understand how legislating a ban on interrogation tactics, like, of course, I support it, but it's like giving false progress. It's also like, why have they been lying to kids all along? You know, the fact that this even has to be a thing. Or maybe we shouldn't be allowing the police to intervene with our kids because they've chosen to lie to them all of this time. Maybe we just remove the police officers from all of the interventions with kids. That that could help things. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe we stop criminalizing children and, and subjecting them to interrogations. I don't know. Oh, wild idea, Nomi. Warning. The next story contains graphic information that may be disturbing to some of our listeners. 
The Arizona state government is planning to carry out executions of people on death row using the same lethal gas that was employed at Auschwitz. According to documents obtained by The Guardian, the Arizona Department of Corrections has purchased over $2,000 for the ingredients that make cyanide gas. Reports allege that the Arizona DOC has begun the process of refurbishing their gas chamber, which hasn't been used in more than 22 years. This comes after months of GOP-led state government attempts to ramp up capital punishment. It just reminds me of last week's story about the other death penalty things that were passing death by firing squad and all that. In more national news, the Biden administration is now calling on the private sector to assist the government in keeping undocumented migrants from entering the border into the U.S., Reuters reports. Last Thursday, Vice President Kamala Harris revealed several agreements made between the United States government and 12 companies, including Microsoft, MasterCard, and Chobani, that would allegedly support job creation in the region. The immigration crisis has now reached a two-decade high, with a record number of unaccompanied minors having crossed the U.S.-Mexico border this past March. Following the meeting between VP Harris and Guatemalan President Hiamate, Guatemala's foreign minister said in a news conference that Guatemala and the United States agreed to, quote, establish a new joint border protection task force. Y'all, these task force including a small number of officials from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. He also said Harris spoke of helping build centers for deportees and beefing up security at Guatemala's ports. He said about 16 DHS officials would initially travel to Guatemala to train local officials in strengthening border infrastructure. Y'all, these task force. And I just need us to understand that this is a legacy of U.S. intervention into Guatemala, and now they're working to militarize the borders in Central America. This is a continuation of Biden's, like, long history of just failed policy. When you look at the two-decade high of migrants uh, crossing the border and also understand that the the NAFTA and CAFTA trade deals that came out of the late 90s, you know, this all connects back to Biden. And this is why those of us who didn't want to vote for him kept warning people that he can't change because he's been entrenched in this violence for such a long time. It's just so essential to his legacy. I want to just remind the listeners of the uprisings that happened in Guatemala this summer as they have already been protesting against their government and that Biden essentially tasked Kamala Harris with fixing the, quote, immigration crisis. And the first thing they do is militarize borders. Kamala even said, like, you know, you can't depend on the government for everything, which is true. Maybe the only true thing that she's ever said, but the fact that, you know, now they're like, instead of mutual aid or community support, community funding, it's Microsoft, MasterCard, banks. Shameful. Well, in other news, over the weekend, thousands took to the streets in D.C. to demand the U.S. government place sanctions against Israel for committing war crimes along the Gaza Strip last month. The 11-day Israeli assault on Palestinians left over 2,000 people wounded and claimed the lives of at least 254 Palestinian people, including 66 children. On Saturday, Janine Shabbat, a national organizer for the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, stated, quote, 
For so long, our tax dollars have funded the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. We came today so we can say it loud and clear to this administration that we as Americans will no longer be complicit in funding these atrocities, end quote. And I don't know if y'all saw the pictures, but it, the streets were packed. People were showing out for Palestinian solidarity. And this is really an exciting movement to watch grow, just knowing how close the United States government and the Israeli government are. You know, I always say it, but if we can shake it up in Israel, then we can shake it up here. So solidarity with the folks who are still fighting and, you know, congrats to all the people who are still in the streets. Moving into our international news, after four inconclusive and illegal elections in the last two years, Israeli opposition parties are nearing an agreement on a governing coalition that would bring an end to Benjamin Netanyahu's 12-year term as prime minister. On Sunday, Netanyahu's chief rival, Yair Lapid, said he would work to form a national unity government with ultra-nationalist leader Naftali Bennett. Bennett is a multi-millionaire former tech entrepreneur who made a name in politics with right-wing religious nationalist rhetoric. A 49-year-old who has made pitches to far-right voters throughout his career leads the Yamina Party, which has called for Israel to annex parts of the occupied West Bank. He has formally held the office of Defense Minister of Israel and has spouted incredibly, incredibly violent rhetoric about Palestinians. So this is a reminder to folks that any elections that are taking place on stolen land are illegitimate. And we will be talking a lot more later in the episode about building Palestinian solidarity with Siona and Michael. This next story contains graphic information. It was recently revealed that for several decades, an official policy of the Canadian government forcibly removed Indigenous children from their families to attend residential boarding schools, only to never be heard from again. Their families were only given vague explanations for their disappearances, like, they simply ran away. These sinister lies did not align with the accounts from survivors of the mandatory boarding school programs who cited physical, violent abuse, starvation, and disappearance as common daily realities of the institution. A mass grave of the remains of 215 Indigenous children in British Columbia was discovered on the grounds of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School. Kamloops was one of the largest residential schools in Canada, operated by the Catholic Church until 1969. Neglect and maltreatment was the norm, with official reports of abuse dating back to 1918. To this day, the Catholic Church and Pope Francis have rejected direct appeals for an apology. The nation's, quote, truth and reconciliation, end quote, commission identified 3,200 children who died in residential schools in their 2015 report titled Missing Children and Unmarked Burials. Since the report's publication, an additional 900 have been identified, though the true total may never be known due to unaccounted death and destroyed files. Y'all. And the last residential school in Canada did not even close until 1996. So they're talking about truth and reconciliation, but the, the victims and the survivors of this violence, right, are still alive. And so, like, reconciliation looks like land back. Looks like making them whole. Namibia has rejected a German offer of compensation for the mass murder of tens of thousands of indigenous people more than a century ago. The Guardian reports. German occupiers in Namibia almost destroyed the Herero and Nama peoples between 1904 and 1908 as they consolidated their rule in the new colony in southwest Africa. Some historians have described the bloodshed as the first genocide of the 20th century. 
The two countries have been discussing an agreement of an official apology from Germany and an increase in development aid, but the talks appear now to be running out of momentum. He said that the most recent offer for reparations made by the German government is not acceptable and needed to be revised. Unconfirmed reports have referred to a total sum of 10 million euros. Other countries in Africa are watching the negotiations between Namibia and Germany closely as they consider launching their own efforts to gain compensation for the violence and theft of decades of European rule. I just want to say, like, the Namibian genocide is often overlooked, but it truly is the first, like, mass genocide to take place. It was the blueprint for the Holocaust, like, The Holocaust could not have been possible without the Namibian genocide. And so oftentimes we commemorate the lives lost when there's European genocide, such as the Holocaust. But we forget and we bury the legacy of the African nations that suffered long before and are suffering long after. And lastly, in international news, in Colombia, last week marked one month since the start of mass uprisings against police brutality, militarized policing, repressive austerity tax reform proposals, and the right-wing government of President Ivan Duque. This weekend, the national government deployed over 1,000 army troops to Cali, a city with a large presence of Afro-Colombians, as well as other cities in the country. In the coming days, Duque has reportedly ordered up to 7,000 soldiers to be sent to Cali. In their solidarity statement released this weekend, the Black Alliance for Peace said, quote, What is little known about the rebellion in Colombia is the disproportionate impact neoliberal policies and the armed conflict have had on Afro-Colombian communities across the country. That is why a disproportionate number of Afro-Colombians have been subjected to murder, police assaults, and disappearances during the course of the national strike. For example, Cali was the site of 41 out of the 66 police-sanctioned murders over the past month. The United States is behind this militarized repression. Its 21-year-old Plan Colombia gives billions of dollars to the Colombian state to criminalize and repress the working class, Afro-Colombians, and indigenous peoples. End quote. As we can see, the United States is indeed fueling the violence both in Palestine and Colombia. Just last August, Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Colombian President Ivan Duque held a joint video conference to launch a new free trade agreement between their two countries. Outside of the United States, Israel is the Colombian military and paramilitary's largest arms supplier. Just as police here in the U.S. deploy Israeli tactics and trainings on its civilians, the Colombian army and police are using their Israeli training to violently crack down on resistance to police and state violence. Y'all, these connections are connecting. We will be exploring them even more today in our episode. So stay tuned as we talk to Siona and Michael about their take on the movement to free Palestine. Stay tuned. Support the Palestinians. Come on now, everybody make a difference. This ain't a military war, they kill infants. No benevolence, no defense. Free Palestine from what the world commends. Come on now, everybody make a difference. This ain't a military war, they kill infants. No benevolence, no defense. Free Palestine from what the world commands. Middle East. Welcome to the show, Michael and Siona, who are the co-hosts of Own Your Stories, a narrative-based podcast here in Virginia. 
Today, we are sitting down to talk about Palestine and the connections to our lives and experiences here in Richmond and also in the DMV. So let's get started. Listeners, I am so excited for y'all to hear from these two. Michael and Siona and I have a long-standing friendship. <laughs> so can you all introduce yourselves to the listeners so they can know? I know that you're wonderful, but can you tell them a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Hello, everybody. My name is Michael Kamel. I am a filmmaker, photographer, former co-director of the DC Palestinian Film and Arts Festival, and I am a Palestinian. Always got to say that. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, yeah, my name's Siona. I'm a journalist. I mostly work in audio and I do some, I'm getting back into writing currently. I have always, like all the stories I work on tend to focus on intersections of the personal and the political. So I I'm really interested in like liberation work and how does liberation tie into storytelling and journalism and how I can shake up the journalism industry because it needs shaking up desperately. I mean, I'm very true American, which I think influences a lot of my perspective onto Palestine. Yes. And Siona, you were out here in Richmond with us all last summer, whether it was yeah. documenting what was going on, facilitating teach ends with us. So people definitely know you down here in Richmond and I'm so glad yeah. that both of you could join us. And just so y'all know, we went to school in the same area up in Northern Yeah, Virginia. literally. Oh, you guys did. I didn't actually. I just said, yeah, like I was at George Mason with y'all, but I was. <laughs> just but like, I know you were, it, you, it feels like you were because you're you were. definitely like part of the squad. Yeah. Um, Michael and I were just talking about how I was doing a teach-in at Mason recently and used one of the videos that you created of the protest mm-hmm. there. Uh, and just like thinking back to like how long we have known each other and how the movement has kind of brought us to to each other um, in different times. It's really powerful because that was yeah. when, Michael, like we used to have a That was that was 2015. I remember that. And that that was that ruffled a lot of people's feathers, actually, when those demands came out and that video came out and the actions People at Mason were shook. They did not know what to do. Administrators were like, wait, uh, uh, what's going on? What was <laughs> the like, demand about? If we can give like a quick overview, I'm curious to know what ruffled some feathers. Yeah, it was around the time that Black students across the U.S. were rising up. So there was the concerned student movement at Mizzou. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Butler went on his hunger strike. And it just got all the way, you know, to the DMV area where not only our school, but other universities as well, Black students and just students of color in general were coming out and saying, like, look, we need more representation. We need an end to the ridiculous policing at our events. It's interesting to look back at those demands now because we weren't saying, you know, abolish or defund or divest from the police. It definitely wasn't there yet. But people were saying, like, look, we need something different than what it is. And, yeah, we, we interrupted a little basketball game. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yep. I remember that. I remember that. I remember oh, wow. we met at the at the Johnson Center, which is like the, one of the main centers on George Mason's campus. And everybody's wearing all black and we just walk in there. And it was, it was, it was a really powerful moment. Yes. Some of those demands were met. I know that the students are still fighting to get the whole police department off campus because there is a whole department on Mason's campus. But yeah, Michael came up with this fly video and that was way back. <laughs> sure he did. Now you're doing filmmaking um, and working to organize the DC Palestinian Film and Arts Festival. I wanted to know a little bit more about this 
festival. I've seen it happening, you know, people getting flossy, going out, seeing these films. You know, and I also you know. know that some of the most powerful activists and Palestinian minds that, that are in my village are part of this process. Uh, so what do y'all do? What is this arts festival? So the DC Palestinian Film and Arts Festival is a space for Palestinians to create art and tell our stories and look at our stories and be in conversation with each other for each other. That's really what it's about. It's about Palestinian mm -hmm. stories being told by Palestinians because so many of our stories, so many of our films, I, I'm saying our, I actually shouldn't be saying our, so many films about us are not made by Palestinians. And there's always the X factor of like, you're not Palestinian. You don't know the experience because also not even every Palestinian knows the experience of being in Palestine. So um, that's why, that's what the DC Palestinian Film and Arts Festival is. It's a, it's a space for Palestinians to create art and relish in our art and have conversations with each other. Um, it was started in 2013 by Nora Harakat, who's a renowned human rights attorney and activist. Hada Asfor, who's an amazing activist in her own right and musician and a scientist. And Nadia Dar, um, who's no longer with the festival, but she's also a brilliant mind. And they were like, hey, we're in D.C. where it's the political epicenter of the world, really. And people are only talking about Palestine politically. And we are so much more than what's being done to us. So that's what the D.C. Palestinian Film and Arts Festival is and what it was born out of. It's giving reclamation. We it really it. is. It really is. And we actually, we only show films that are produced, directed, and or written by people who identify as Palestinian. That is um, so powerful. It is. It's really, it's powerful and it's honestly necessary. And we have people hit us up like, hey, my film, well, none of us are Palestinian, but we really think this film is powerful. And it's like, well, what do the Palestinians think about this film, you know? <laughs> and I feel like just in this moment of seeing how headlines and media are really able to take what is an ethnic cleansing, really, and turn that into, you know, this both sides thing. There's all types of different narratives that are being perpetuated through the media. And to have this space where y'all have reclaimed your own stories. And in some ways, like, gatekeep it, right? Like, this is Palestinian stories. These are our narratives. I just find that so incredibly powerful. Thank you. Thank you. And I also think it's powerful for non-Palestinians to be in the space where Palestinians are being unapologetic. And just to take that in and just listen to us like just listen to us that's all palestinians especially with the most recent uprisings like we're saying like listen to us look at what is going on look at what has been going on for 73 years now listen to us like you don't always have to talk just listen to us and share our stories and it's really that simple it really is like sharing stories is actually not as hard as people make it seem it is or make it seem they make it seem like it's so difficult but like michael said like you just need to listen like and, and listening is an act. It, it is a resisting act, I think, to take time and listen to people who are being told their stories do not matter. And listening not to report on it or to share it on social media, but actually in the desire to be in solidarity with folks. I'm wondering, how are y'all processing this moment? It's been a few weeks now since the most recent assault by Israel on Palestine. There's been a ceasefire but we know that the violence is still continuing um, and this is nothing new. And so I'm just wondering, how are y'all processing this moment? Um, it's definitely been 
it's been hard and there's definitely been a lot of tears involved, but it's also been a very hopeful moment seeing so many non-Palestinians on my timeline posting pro-Palestinian information and stances for the first time ever that I've seen with my own eyes is really, it was, it's really bizarre to like take in and accept like, whoa, people are actually saying like, yeah, Palestinians need to be free. Palestinians do not need to be killed and assaulted and barred from their homes. Um, and that sounds like such a simple, like human thing, like, oh, you know, this shouldn't be happening. But it, for, unfortunately for Palestine, it's not a common stance. So to see that has been really, really inspiring and really hopeful. And I know people in Palestine on the ground have been really encouraged by that as well and have been saying, please keep keep this up. Please keep up this momentum and keep sharing our stories. Like I was saying earlier, because it's not one of those topics where everybody just agrees on and we think that this is all a terrible thing, unfortunately. Um, so that's how I've been kind of processing it and also just recognizing that like I am a diaspora. And so what I'm experiencing and all the emotions are feeling, I'm feeling are nothing compared to what's happening to people on the ground. So then taking that and kind of using that as strength to be like, okay, my people over in Palestine are suffering. Um, how can I, how can I uplift them as well? So that's how I've been processing the moment. What I've learned about Palestine came from our time at Mason, but also being able to learn directly from Palestinian folks in our little village. And so just to see how many more people and not only millennials, but the generation behind us that are just coming with this power, right? Like, like you're saying, the infographics, the, the videos that are actually explaining stuff and the conversations and dialogue, I feel like are really different from our days on campus where if we even had a small protest, it was going to be cops showing up, uh, and Zionists, right? And they're still out there, but I feel like the voice is a little bit stronger than it was even maybe five years ago. And I'll even add that, like, I've even seen a lot of pro-Palestine TikToks. And TikTok has been a very useful tool, especially for young, the younger generations to mobilize and share information and, and break down like what's going on in different parts of the world. And so to see Palestine injected into the TikTok world is really also really cool. It's really cool. I don't think I expected TikTok to be such a major thing in or, like organizing ever. For a variety of reasons, because I think I just am someone who's always late to social media. Like, I'm like, I, I deactivate my social media every single week because I get overwhelmed by like two notifications, right? TikTok has become such a major tool. And I, I don't think the people who played it expected it to be a source of radical change for other communities. I think it speaks to like people creating their own spaces to spread information, even when a system literally is not designed for that purpose. Yeah, we love the reclamation of tools for our movement. Siona, how are you processing this moment? We've talked about it a little bit, but I'm curious. Kalia and I did talk about this last year and we're, I think during the first reclamation teacher we had, we were like, we should do something on like black Palestinian solidarity. We, we, and I think we still want to do that thing, but like we first actually talked about it last year because it was so clear to us how like this movement for black lives connected to other liberation movements in a very like clear way. For me, because I'm not Palestinian, I don't think I'm looking at it I don't have that same personal, I think, deeply rooted trauma that come with seeing your people being, you know, actively cleansed. And also not just that, seeing people debate about your humanity. But but I'm familiar with that, right? Like, you're familiar with that. We know what that looks like, what that sounds like, what it feels like. And for me, um, the reason I think I've been so 
in, interest, not interested, but I think active in this space is because I am Eritrean and a lot of Eritreans have fled the country in the past 30 years for a variety of reasons. And a lot of times they end up in Libya where they're enslaved or they end up in Israel, which is a, a horrifying place to be if you're a black migrant. Obviously, Israel has like cherry picked certain like Ethiopians, Eritreans, Sudanese, you know, cherry pick some black people to put them into these systems and benefit them. But by and large, the, my introduction to Zionism really was through being young, like in early 2000s and hearing stories of Eritrean migrants and some Ethiopian migrants and the violence they're facing in Israel um, from, you know, being killed in the streets, from facing mob attacks, from having Eritrean and I, I believe Ethiopian, but generally African preschools and schools totally banned. Uh, active segregation of Black people in Israel. Like, that was my introduction to Zionism. And then with meeting Michael, I had a chance to really understand what is Zionism within the context of Palestine and how is it, how does Zionism function as uh, a tool of, that's not only just distinctly anti-Palestinian, but also is anti-Black fundamentally. Yes, I want to highlight this point for folks that Zionism is inherently anti-Black. And so understanding that, I think is really powerful. And for me and my experience, because of the time that I came into understanding Palestine um, or even being introduced to it, right? Because how do you understand something like that is ongoing, that is a lived experience that isn't your own? And it was through these descriptions, right? Of exclusion, of oppression, where I'm like, hmm, whether it was Michael or even Professor Nora at the time, like, that sounds real familiar. <laughs> they doing what? Mm-hmm. Oh, they they working with the U.S. too? Hold up, you know? And so we're in the streets at that time, whether it was Freddie Gray, Natasha McKenna, and Fairfax, really hearing these connections. And I'm like, mm, this is adding up. And I, one thing I saw someone on Twitter tweet was like, whenever you talk to a Black person and you explain Palestine to them, for the most part, they got to be like free Palestine, you know, because it is <laughs> yes. familiar. I do remember that tweet. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Honestly, it's true. I I have seen just being able to explain the situation, like black friends, or even like a lot of my Latinx friends too. Like sometimes I'll wear a shirt that literally says Palestine in public, and I will literally most of the time have people who are Latinx or black come up to me and be like, "Hey, I support you." And like, that's not an exaggeration. That has happened so many times. I have this sh- I've had the shirt for almost 10 years now because I refuse to get rid of it. And I, it, it is the most heartwarming thing, but also it's also kind of sad because it's like, we have these same struggles. And I think, I think people are start, a lot of people have been realizing that over the years, like Zionism is anti-Black. A lot of our struggles are connected and not only are they parallel, but like you were saying, there's, there's direct connections. There were organizers in D.C. a few years ago trying to get Mayor Bowser to stop her trip to Israel and to stop police training between D.C. and Israeli forces. It's directly connected. It's not even just parallels. And so it's 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 beautiful that we're able to identify those struggles and stand in solidarity with each other and show up for each other. But it's also like, goddamn, like (laughs) we're all going through this shit. Like (laughs) sometimes that's literally how I feel. I'm just like, damn, this is tough. But. We have each other. I mean, like we have each other and just keeping those bonds strong is really, really crucial to liberation. Yeah. And I mean, down to some of the weapons, the the rubber bullets, the tear gas, mm-hmm. the construction machines that demolish homes here and in Palestine. Um, it's just following the money. And so for me, once 
I don't, I'm not good with budget. So once my comrades that are good with numbers were able to kind of highlight those things, right? That the money from whether it's DC police, Richmond police, like they're sending folks over there. Our universities are having study abroad trips there. There's just all of this collaboration that's happening that may not seem so clear because Americans are so conditioned to think of Israel as a ally. And I'm putting that in air quotes, like mean air quotes for the listeners. Um, that once it starts, once you start to think about it in the way of like, oh, Israel is an occupying violent force. Hmm, maybe all of our churches and schools and everybody and their cousins shouldn't be partnering with them. And, um, you know, having agreements that exchange money and, and resources. I feel like that, that cultural power you're kind of talking about indoctrination is like, it is, it's everywhere. It's in, it's in pop culture. It's in sitcoms. America is a fundamentally anti-Semitic country. This country, you know, in 2017, I don't know about y'all, but I remember getting texts from people when Charlottesville was happening, you know, people texting what was happening and they were like, they're saying the Jews will not replace us. Our country is not actually invested in, in really addressing historical violent anti-Semitism towards Jewish communities. It's only invested in protecting a Zionist narrative, right? And like once you separate Zionism from anti-Semitism, it makes it, it's hard to do because of how culturally ingrained it is. And I think especially people who are non-Palestinians, we have that duty to ingrain it because even within Black communities, there's some sects of Black communities where there is this weird idolation of like Israel in some way, right? So like we have to unpack that and like listen to people who are telling these stories because also, yeah, like Michael said, it's exhausting because Palestine situation, occupation, open air prisons, it's not unique. It's just... It's, it's in many places. And once you realize, oh, there's different communities who can relate to this, but we're only making a pass for one community or one country. Like, why is that? Why is that happening? And just thinking about, like, how we resist it, it's through our art, it's through our messaging, our narratives, our storytelling and collective power building, which I think is the part that to me is very inspiring. But it's also back to that, like, oh, you got to do this work, right? And there are, there's like, we're up against not one, but two violent nation states that are settler colonialists. I mean, you could add in more. I mean, we've seen what's happened in Canada this past week with the residential schools to understand that, like, when we think about Western powers, they don't even got to be in the West, right? But <laughs> we think about these powers that they're, they're actually wielding real violence and structural violence has been happening for a long time. Um, one thing I wanted to, to talk a bit about was the art and resistance that's happening in Palestine. I did see that there was like murals and paintings happening that were being criminalized. And it really reminded me a lot of the murals and street paintings here in Richmond, also in DC as well. And thinking about like reclamation of space and narrative. And I know we talked a little bit about it in the beginning, but have y'all been seeing that stuff? Yeah, I have. I've been seeing a lot of, well, there's a lot of mural and graffiti on the apartheid wall in Palestine. That's kind of been a longstanding thing. Um, but I have also seen in like Sheikh Jarrah where they've been like, there was one day recently where they were just painting on some of their streets and, and the police came and were like, oh no, this, they said it was racist, I believe. <laughs> And so they started arresting Palestinians. Like, it's really, it's really insidious. Um, but the fact that they keep making this art, Palestinians are still going to keep painting on this wall, on this apartheid wall. 
And they're also, I think Palestinians within our art, especially over the past few years, have been sharp about drawing connections. So the fact that somebody painted George Floyd's face on the apartheid wall to say like, hey, this is the same shit. That, that to me was a very powerful moment. I remember back in Ferguson, a lot of Palestinians were sharing tips with pe- protesters in Ferguson saying, hey, here's how you can help yourself when you get tear gas, for example, and vice versa. So the art has been, I mean, Palestinians, one thing about us, we're going to resist, whether it's through art or what have you. One thing about us. Um, <laughs> and so I have been seeing the art coming out of Palestine. And, and I know that this is also going to inspire a new wave of films, I believe that will, that I think we're going to see, it's going to be a lot of powerful narratives. I think we're going to see more of mainstream Palestinian films in the next few years, personally. That's a good point. Um, I was going to just say, I think Michael is much more in tune with like those direct things happening like on the ground immediately. But I think the fact that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mohammed Al-Kurd is a poet, no? Like the fact that they were talking about this, this occupation, they're talking about it from February. I remember first reading about it in February. They've actively been using words to energize people get people involved get them pay attention i think like the resistance has obviously been ongoing with or without this so-called ceasefire and oh yeah i would love some palestinian mainstream films i would love more films that that show the variety of experiences that happen in that space it's not only like paintings and murals but it is music it is what you're saying siona the words that are bringing people to action from from palestine to here in the u.s as well and it's just beautiful to see. I mean, we all know our movement rappers and music makers here in Richmond, and we've seen the amazing murals as they popped up all over the city, whether we had teachings there or not, whether they're fenced in on a statue or not. We've seen the power of what art can do in our city. And so just knowing that that is a tactic that is used all over the place. It's a, and it's a very powerful tactic. If you look at Palestinian art, whether that's painting, music, poetry, etc., over the past decades, a lot of it, unfortunately, parallels the art that's being created now, like the narratives that are being told now. And art and journalism as well, I think that's really important to note, in movements, is criminalized for a reason. There is a reason why it is not safe for Palestinians to always speak out about Palestine in this manner. There is a reason why Mohammed al-Kurd is being targeted and why his family is being targeted. And there's, re- there's a reason why Ghassan Kadafani was assassinated. He was a Palestinian writer. The importance of the arts is a big conversation just in general, especially like within the U.S. But if it wasn't important and it wasn't powerful, why would these white supremacist nations waste their resources and their time criminalizing artists? Why would they do that if it wasn't powerful? Full stop on, like... Full stop, like... The fact that journalists are being targeted, are being criminalized. I know over the weekend, I saw that there's been just, you know, quite a few Palestinian journalists that have been violently arrested, taken into custody by the Israeli forces. And so thinking as we're on this movement media here about how criminalization happens. So just seeing those arrests happening there, it made it a little bit real for me because I'm like, if it can happen in Palestine, it can happen anywhere else. And so we see it in Latin America as well with the journalists all the time that are getting um, disappeared is what it's called. So I don't know if y'all have thoughts about that too. Like y'all are in the journalism field and thinking about like our responsibility to tell the truth (laughs) and then the repercussions that can come from that. 
I have so many thoughts on this. Like, I like this is, I think, the basis of the work. So Reporters at Borders, May 28th, 2021, released this document saying that and since this current uprising, how, or, you know, resistance started, 13 Palestinian journalists were arrested within Israel. In America, I mean, in journalism to talk about Palestine, for a long time, you lose your job. Like, I mean, you see Mark Lamont Hill, right, when he did on CNN, when he talked about Palestine, specifically talking about the from the river to the sea, he lost his job. Recently, that AP Associated Press News Associate, y'all, a news associate is like, and I don't say this like in a dismissive way, it is like an entry level position. It's like just after intern. They were so threatened by her, they fired her. They don't, I don't know if they expected her to get as much support as she did. And she comes from an Orthodox Jewish family. But they were telling her, hinting she was anti-Semitic because she had the nerve to say, hey, journalism industry, why do we cover Palestine in a way that actively silences Palestinians? There's research that shows like so many opinion pieces about Palestine are not written by Palestinians or written by anyone else who is not Palestinian, right, by and large. And within journalism itself, yeah, for a long time. And I would say to this moment, at this moment, when you like me talking about this now, I know I face certain uh, professional pushback. I don't care. I decide to be independent. So like whatever. But this idea of like, if you're a journalist who talks about Palestine and looks at Palestine, in my opinion, with true objectivity, which is looking at the resistance and who has actual equal access to power, you're deemed not only as biased, you're deemed as anti-Semitic, you're deemed as a hateful person, which is absolutely deeply offensive, right? Like, so this, this, this it tactic is of disappearance, offensive. it is deeply offensive, because I'm like, that is absolutely, like, if someone came up to me, and I think it's most, like, and I think a lot of Palestinians talk about this too, like, our movement is not for, is not promoting anti-Semitism, so stop dismissing critique of Israel as anti-Semitism. But yeah, the tactic of disappearance, again, like being Eritrean, all the journalists that were rounded up in 2001, a lot of them are still in prison. A lot of them um, have been disappeared or died if they escaped. And I'm very familiar with those tactics. And that's what got me into space. So like, I think that's a lot. And I think I'm glad people, journalists are actually talking about how ridiculous this this abuse of objectivity is to silence stories about Palestine from the Palestinian perspective or stories um, that are critical of Israel in any capacity, even if it's not coming from Palestinians, is. But we have work to do. That was a rant, but we have work to do. And not to mention, like, especially recently with, so a lot of Palestinians recently have been on mainstream news networks like Nora, like Mohammed, um, and a few other people. And they are actively being gaslit in real time on mainstream media, on the TV. Like, my mm-hmm, mom's watching mm-hmm. this, and I'm like, oh, My God, the way that they are flipping what this person is saying and dismissing them. And this is not a new tactic for Palestinians. This is not a new tactic for Black people. This is not a new tactic for Indigenous folks. Like, this, anytime we as people from from literally any, uh, any identity that's really not white, straight, American, anytime we try to talk about our experiences and what's going on, we're always met with gaslighting. Always met with like, well, is that really what's going on? And it's like, you know what? Yes, the hell it is. I was about to curse. Yes, the hell it is. What's really going on? (laughs) Like, I don't know what else to tell you. But um, I would say, I would also encourage people to go watch Muhammad Al-Kurd's interviews and just see, check out the masterclass, the masterclass that he gives at flipping the script on interviewers and throwing the questions back at them and being like, you're asking me what does eviction mean for us when it's really not eviction, it's actually violent dispossession that's illegal internationally. Like it, the way that he the way that he handles those interviews is really a masterclass, I think, for a lot of people from marginalized identities. I agree. 100%. 100%.
Just hard yes. And also a note to journalists and reporters everywhere that the questions matter. They really do. As someone who's been interviewed throughout the uprisings here, understanding that like we have a race capital reframe for a reason, because there's a constant need to reframe the news in the ways that it's being put out to the people. Well, y'all, we are coming to the end of our interview. We have talked about a lot of different things here today. And of course, this is the beginning of an ongoing conversation that we will be having about Palestine on our platform. But I was wondering if there are a few nuggets of info or things that you're thinking about that you want to leave with the listeners. People will always ask you, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? You should look into boycott, divestment, sanctions, BDS. It has actual economic impact on Israel, and that is one of the most effective tactics at this moment. In addition to sharing Palestinian sources, there's a lot of great, there's Palestinian media, like the IMEU that you can follow. And from there, you can just find more Palestinians to follow and see what they're posting in real time from Gaza, from Sheikh Jarrah, from Jerusalem, from the West Bank. And also check out our art as well. Check out the DC Palestinian Film and Arts Festival. There's a lot of really great films out there. I mean, you can, you, it, sometimes it can be exhausting to look at things so politically, like at least in my opinion, like to always think about things within the realm of politics. So to be able to look at it from more of an artistic, cultural standpoint, quote unquote, it's, it's very helpful to me. So I would recommend that as well. But for people that are looking for actual, like, what can I do? BDS and sharing information and resources. I just want to tell everyone, like, the DCPFAF, like, that was, I think, one of my earliest political homes when I was, like, 18. I didn't realize that was the case. It taught me the importance of having political conversations through different mediums, like art and, like, film festivals and all these different things. So I really want to second that, like, absolutely look into it. It was a really important space for me when I was, like, 18 and has, like, influenced all the work I do now. I think from the perspective of, like, journalism, it's really just, like, really questioning sources. Like, if you see an article, like, don't just read the headline, take the time to read it and figure out like, what is this thing actually saying to me? Like, is it, is it engaging with the people it's talking about? Is it not engaging with them? If it's not engaging with them, but not, you know, not saying that's what it's doing, be very critical of it. But I think above all, it's like, ask questions. That's what I've done. Like as someone who's not Palestinian and like an ally and is, you know, interested in and understands the power of interconnected liberation movements, I ask questions and I ask them in a way that's I, I want to learn. And I think being uncomfortable at first, like feeling a little discomfort of asking an uncomfortable question, but being interested in that has helped me a lot in learning things. So I can speak about this with like some sort of just like empathy and authority. But and also like listen to Palestinians. That's what I'm doing. Listen to Palestinians. That's the key here. Listen to Palestinians. Yes, like we say we say it all the time in the sense of black people, right? Like listen to black women, listen to black people. It's the same practice. And something else I just wanted to mention, because to me, when I realized how global Blackness was, that was powerful for me. So one thing is like, there are Afro-Palestinians. And so understanding that like, we don't need that to stand in solidarity, but knowing that it's there, that there are Black people that are Palestinian. And so this is also a Black issue. And so I found that to be just like so enlightening also to see Black Palestinians live in a, they melanated lives. And just so y'all know, there are ways to engage with the BDS movement right here in Richmond. We have institutions that are invested directly into Israel right here. Virginia as a state 
is pretty invested in the state of Israel. And so it's time for us to follow the numbers. Uh, and when we say defunding the police, we also understand that that means defunding also the military industrial complex that allows over $3 billion to go to Israel annually. And so, yeah, we want more money for Black futures, for Palestinian futures. That means defunding this killer system now. And when Palestine is free, we're going to free the next people and we're going to free the next people and we're going to free the next people. And I think that's that's really what's really important is that, like, I think it's about humanity. Do you believe in humanity and liberation at the end of the day? Which is why even before I was politically involved with Palestine, I knew, okay, I support black people in the U.S. because this is really a up system, you know. (laughs) So we're going to keep going until, you know, we all have a liberated future. Yes, please read Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Davis. I mean, required reading at this point. Justice for Some by Nora Erica, and then Except for Palestine by Mark Lamont Hill. These are good readings and um, resources, as well as GazaInContext.com. These are resources that y'all can check out to just learn more about this, especially Angela Davis's book that really dives into things like G4S which is right here in Richmond, things that we can divest from today. And so I just wanted to close us out with a quote by Lilla Watson, who says that our liberation is bound together. So on that note, when Palestine is free, when Black people are free, we will all be free. Thank you so much to Michael and Siona. Thank you. Can y'all tell people where to follow you, though? Because y'all got a whole ass podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Currently, Own Your Stories. So on Instagram, at Own Your Stories, O-W-N-Y-O-U-R-S-T-O-R-I-E-S. I think our socials are tagged on there too. You can, my social is long, so you can find me on there. Um, We are on a hiatus, but back in July, essentially. So yeah, I'm excited for, um, I'm happy we got a chance to talk to you is great thank you and yeah you can if you want to follow me personally you can it's camel world k-a-m-e-l world camel with a k (laughs) if you want to follow me personally i post a bunch of random stuff including about palestine (laughs) yes wonderful content all right thank y'all so much for being on the show and we will have you back soon enough thank you thank you And we close out today's episode with powerful words from Dr. Nura Erekrat. There are sellers! There are sellers everywhere! And they have made it clear to us that we can remain if we stay on our knees and subjugated. And despite 73 years of trying to fragment us, of putting us in open-air prisons, of locking us down into Bantustans, of separating us with blue passports, orange passports, green passports, we have risen up to say we are one people. We are one people. We are Palestinians from the river to the sea and across the world. I couldn't sleep last night, but I'm lucky to even have that privilege because I'm following what's happening in Gaza. They told us in 2014 it was unprecedented. They told us in 2012 it was unprecedented. They told us in 2008 and 2009 it was unprecedented. In 2021, it is again unprecedented. It is the lack of accountability. It is the blank check from this imperial capital of the world that makes it possible. That makes it possible. 
technology. These aren't crude rockets. Hamas has crude rockets they can't target. Israel is a weapons exporter. It sells its weapons and says they're battle-tested. It is the only nuclear power in the Middle East. It is the 11th most significant military in the world. They can target if they want. And they are targeting children. They are targeting families. They struck Al-Mukhayyam al-Shatih. They demolished homes and pulled out one survivor, a two-month-year-old named Omar. One survivor. Who is going to explain to Omar what happened to his family? Who is going to explain how in an instant they were wiped out and this capital and other diplomatic capitals said, we need calm. We need both sides of calm. We need accountability. We need sanctions. We need sanctions. We need sanctions. So I pledge no allegiance to the devilish souls. I pledge no allegiance to the product you sold. I pledge no allegiance to this land that you stole. And pledge no allegiance to the lies I was told. I said I pledge no allegiance to the devilish souls. I pledge no allegiance to the product you sold. I pledge no allegiance to the land that you stole. And pledge no allegiance to the lies I was told. But mark my words, we will be free. They can't take our souls. There ain't no feast. So raise them up. Make a fist with your hands. Take a stand and ask yourself, can we start a revolution? Yes, we can. Thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in to Race Capital. Catch us next week, Wednesday at 10 a.m. on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio.